Welcome, everyone, to the Department 12 podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Butina. Joining me today is Daniel Madej. How are you, Daniel? I am doing well, Ben. Glad to join you. All right. So, Daniel, you teach at the University of Hartford in the Master's IO Psych program, and you teach training program design and evaluation, right? That's correct, yeah. All right. And the reason that uh, Daniel's on the show today is to share some tips for digitizing the classroom, which I know is uh, a situation that a lot of you find yourself in. Uh, Maybe you've been teaching for a long time uh, and you're moving to the digital classroom for the first time, or maybe you're doing hybrid. It seems like every university has a slightly different plan for how they're doing this, but I know uh, that Daniel is going to have some useful advice. So let me start with kind of a weird question for you, Daniel. As somebody that is not only an instructor yourself, but someone that studies, uh, you know, instructional design and program design, when you think about the average instructor who's never taught online before, uh, let's just say they have, you know, average technical abilities, but they're mostly accustomed to teaching in person and they need to move uh, their material either fully online or into into a hybrid format. How difficult of a transition is that? Let's just say like on a one to 10 with one being, you know, tying your shoe and and 10 being nuclear physics. (laughs) Uh, Well, I think it would fall in the realm of IO psychology. Um, Intimidating at first, but once you get everything planned out and plotted out, it's a very efficient system. I'd give it a six. Um, It really comes down to your instructional design. All right. So what advice uh, would you start with uh, if, if someone's looking to make that transition? They're, they're looking at a stack of, you know, syllabi and materials and slides and things that they're used to presenting in that classroom. How do they get started? Sure. So the biggest thing to keep in mind is that you will be learning and you're going to keep improving. Um, one of the great things about going online is that everything's digitized and there's a lot of data to look at. So you can track changes and have way better metrics to see what's different. Um, now, as far as getting started, um, take a deep breath, remain calm. There's usually a big workload, and especially right now, a pretty quick push. But um, I mean, the way I took it when I first started was um, just getting your basics down. Read through your syllabus, make sure that's iron tight, and make that your roadmap. Um, does anything need to change from the syllabus? Odds are 80, 90% of that will remain the same unless you had some other strong physical component. And then from there, a lot of what you'll be doing is building out some paths or just some flexibility in the course. Uh, odds are if you have to convert, uh, there's something else that's causing you to do so. So you want to make sure you write that into your syllabus and, and be mindful of it. Students know what's going on, especially at the graduate level. So it's best to bring them into that conversation and integrate it into your lessons if you can. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you mentioned something uh, very early on in your answer that caught my attention. I wanted to jump back to it. You, you talked about there's more metrics, there's more trackability in the online classroom. Could you give me a couple of examples of some things that you might track in an online classroom that you wouldn't be able to to track or or analyze in the live in-person classroom? Oh, yeah. Um, One of the favorites is we use a uh, service called Canvas for learning management system. And we also use Ensemble, which is for recording and uh, media preservation. 
Uh, as part of that, I can see not only who's watched the video, but I also can see how many people have listened to the lecture, either video or audio, at what point they stopped off on, hmm. and if they're doing it on a mobile uh, desktop or some sort of combination. Oh, that's super useful. Um, I've gotten just a little peek into the world of those kinds of uh, metrics for the podcast, and that's how I know generally how long to make the shows, because I know uh, in general when people tend to tune out. Um, so that, that's, I, I could see that being really useful for teaching a class. Um, I wonder like the ensemble, you said that's the, the tool that you use for creating, is it like lectures, presentations? How, how does that work? Exactly. It's both. Um, so the way I approach the class is it's, I like to call it an online hybrid. It is synchronous or asynchronous depending on the student's choice. So every week, it's a seven-week course, I have a live online lecture, and I send out a survey before the class begins to figure out what time works best for most people. Uh, from there, it's usually Wednesday nights, and people can join into the meeting live. Uh, there's a few different ways they can do that. Either by telephone, uh, we use WebEx, or previously I used JoinMe, are all great programs. And from there, they see a video, uh, just a little thumbnail of me in the corner, and most of it's on the slides itself and just lecturing through it. Depending on how many are attending, we'll have some discussions too. Okay. Have you found that the, the video thumbnail of yourself, and I assume that's live, it's like a little talking head video of you. Exactly. Have you found that that's important? Yes and no. <laughs> Frankly, on the student side, it's not important. Um, most nobody really cares to see me. First lecture, I show a few pictures of myself and my cat just to show them that there is a face. Um, but if you're new to recording, um, it definitely helps to see a face and talk to one. Uh, for example, right now, uh, since we're recording on audio, I'm looking at a little uh, plushy cat my partner has just so I'm talking to a face. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So it's almost more for the instructor than it is for the students. Um, you know, when you think about someone who is used to lecturing uh, or presenting in front of a class and they have access to the full range of, you know, like body language and the social cues of making eye contact and, you know, facial expressions and reading the room and that kind of thing. What, if anything, can an instructor do uh, to replicate some of the, those tools in the online environment? Yeah, it really depends on your context. Um, like I mentioned with the plushie, it helps to have some sort of face to look at. Mm -hmm. um, if you have somebody who's very moaning and you're quarantining with, uh, having an audience just sit around uh, can be really helpful. Um, but at the end of the day, it really depends on what your class is focusing on. And what I like to give advice on is that you're going to have more options for people and all the content and resources you have to provide are accessible to all students, but they're not for all students. And what I mean is that you, you know, a few of your students who don't want to have every little extra additional reading and some who are just going to show up for the tests. Mm -hmm. um, and that works out well for both of them, depending on what their study habits are. So keeping that in mind, um, you are going to have some low attendance lectures probably, especially at first. And that's fine. Um, you have to kind of disconnect that you are going to have a bit longer turnaround time on that transfer of learning. Uh, now, the advantage here is that you can throw more methods and more resources than you wouldn't otherwise do. 
previously in your uh, face-to-face lecture, you'd have to do everything in an hour or so when you're in the lecture hall. Now you can refer to resources um, a bit on the fly, have hyperlinks in your lecture slides, have readings that are a bit more maybe interactive or have activities in them. And what you could also do, depending on preference, is record two short lectures throughout the week rather than have just one larger one. Mm-hmm. Is there a best practice you suggest for how long a lecture should be? I try to benchmark it with how it would be face-to-face. Um, mine's a seven-week course, so my lectures tend to be a bit longer. And that's knowing that students tend to skip around from them. And I try to give them some very good audio cues or in the lectures to let them know what content is what. So, for instance, I usually have a review of the last week's assignments, give them some feedback on the papers they've turned in. We look a bit beyond the reading, talk about the topics, and then wrap up with the next assignments. So plenty of people just skip to the end and figure out what's due next week. <laughs> um, but being very clear and evident about that is great because at the end of the day, you want students to get what they need um, and they can always go back to it later. What, what's the ratio uh, in general of students who actually attend the live lectures versus those who attend asynchronous? That one ranges a bit by semester. Uh, I'll be honest, the first time around, it was only about uh, five to one. <laughs> uh, and part of that was because a lot of students simply weren't used to it. Uh, I was one of the first ones to kind of do it in the program. And over time, I noticed that students started to talk to each other. And then that's where you have a lot more interest. Now, okay. Quarantine, so, things mm-hmm. definitely <laughs> Yeah, all of a sudden, this becomes a lot more popular uh, delivery method. Now, you said five to one, so you said in the beginning, I just want to clarify it, it's about five people attending, quote-unquote, the recordings versus for every one person that's attending live. Was that right? Oh, sorry, I flipped that. One to five. Okay. And then um, when you're lecturing or when you're presenting, are, are you facilitating a discussion with those who attend live, or is it more of a a uh, talking head sage on the stage kind of situation. <laughs> I try to avoid the latter as much as I can. Um, it really depends on how many people are in the lecture. There have been a few, but it's only been one or two. So I don't want to force them to be the spotlight. Um, but there's a few different inflection points I plan in. Uh, these are in the slides. So that even if they're listening later on, they can look at some discussion questions and think, well, what do I think? And I actually even tell them to pause the recording and just write down the thoughts just as part of the listening process. Um, where it really comes into play though, is I have a very experimental design for my course. I tend to change it around a bit every semester mm-hmm. and explain what's changed just so they know that their input is, um, that goes into the instructional design elements of the content. But, uh, with that in mind, I try to get them to, uh, not only share, you know, the correct answers, but a lot more of their opinions, applications, and going forward in the future, have them have a bit more of a, uh, civil debates. So I try to give them a position uh, and argue for it. Now, I started off open asking, is training more of an art or a science? Got great responses on both ends. And going forward, uh, the plan is to give them a bit more of an assignment saying, here is your position. How would you defend that if that's what you had to do? So give them a little mm-hmm. debate skills just to see some more perspective. So what kind of feedback do you get from students when you deliver in this format? So less about, you know, the actual conversation about the content and the engagement with the ideas, but 
the feedback on, you know, what their experience is like of attending, you know, either online or, or a hybrid? Uh, it's going to vary by student, but frankly, a lot of them are surprised. Um, I hate to be so pessimistic, but the bar is a bit low. Uh, so as you might be a bit nervous transitioning things here, uh, there's plenty of courses that simply have nothing. I can tell you right now, even your first, maybe a very nervous attempt will be much better than having nothing and having students confused. Uh, secondly, there's some very old uh, slides and recordings out there. Mm -hmm. I know some professors used to use the embedded audio recording option in, uh, I believe it's PowerPoint 2010. Mm -hmm. As you can imagine, not the best recording. <laughs> so um, really, as long as they can hear your voice clearly, um, a lot of tools right now, whether it's uploading to YouTube or using Ensemble, will actually do auto transcriptions for you. And they're not perfect, but they're pretty good to follow along with. Um, and more than anything else, even if you don't feel it when you're recording, having that similar voice every week really does help students and makes them feel connected so that when I maybe give them a call in the semester, if they've fallen off and they've missed a few assignments, um, they recognize the voice, they feel much more comfortable. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That creates a, a sense of unity across the coursework and it gives them sort of a, a home base to return to in a way that it wouldn't be if it were you know, seven modules by seven different people or, you know, seven different formats, that kind of thing. People just sort of get used to your voice and your delivery style, and then it becomes kind of a cue for them to learn. Um, I, I wonder what, if you could go back, uh, you, you talked about ex experimenting with your course design, uh, which I think is very cool. And you're constantly changing things up, trying out new things and trying to make things better. If you could go back and talk to yourself uh, before the first time you did this, what's the one piece of advice you would give yourself now? Relax. Just relax. It's going to be okay. <laughs> Great advice. Well, Daniel, I want to thank you very much uh, for sharing this. I know it's going to be helpful to a lot of people, and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Pleasure to have you.